Welcome, everyone, to a very special episode of Winter is Here, hosted in partnership with the Tocqueville Family Foundation and the French newspaper Le Figaro. As always, I'm your host, Uriel Epstein, Executive Director of the Renew Democracy Initiative. Last week, I had the distinct pleasure of hosting a conversation at the historic home of Alexei de Tocqueville with former U.S. Secretary of Defense, General Jim Mattis, and former French military head of the armed forces, i.e. the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Edouard Guillot. We had a wide-ranging conversation, covering everything from different perspectives on the goals of NATO, what its role is in supporting Ukraine, and what its future could look like in the global battle against tyranny. Without any further ado, I hope you enjoy. We're here, as everyone knows, to discuss the future of the transatlantic alliance in light of Vladimir Putin's horrific invasion of Ukraine and NATO members' joint response to Russia's aggression. While NATO countries displayed more force and unity than Putin expected, there are still questions about whether they're doing enough to ensure Ukraine's victory against a well-armed foe and whether we can remain united over time, especially as inflation, high gas prices, war fatigue take their toll. Meanwhile, dictators, of course, don't sit on their laurels. And while we might be focused on Russia, the free world still faces threats from China, North Korea, Iran, and others. So we have a lot to cover. General Mattis, why don't we start with you? Russia's invasion of Ukraine has captured the attention of the Western world. We are witnessing massive global assistance for Ukraine. We're seeing Europe taking another look at its energy future, and new countries are pursuing NATO membership. Can you help us understand the moment we're in? How significant is this conflict? And what does it mean for the geopolitical order? Well, thank you all for having me here. What it means is we can gather in peace and have an open discussion right now here on this side of the fighting. Meanwhile, they do not see the same sort of freedom in Moscow right now. A Russian speaker in Ukraine has more freedom of speech than a Russian speaker in Moscow does. There's a lesson in there. I also just want to back off and look a little more broadly at this for a minute and just say it's just wonderful to join you here. Normandy is hallowed ground to Americans for a couple of reasons. One is a couple miles away are those beaches where the democracy's armies demonstrated their awesome determination that once aroused, democracies will defend what we value very clearly. And by the way, some carried British-made guns, some carried Belgian-made guns, some carried American-made guns, and they all knew what they had to do, and it did not stop us from fighting together because we had some different equipment out there, not to worry about that in the alliance we have today. It's also hallowed ground because of what Alexis de Tocqueville found in his youth back a couple hundred years ago now nearly, and writing with very penetrating insights into what motivates and what makes these experiments work, the ones you and I call democracies, and that's all they are, is experiments. And we're here to talk today about how to ensure our experiments do not fail. And in science, in hostile laboratories where you unleash antibodies, sometimes experiments can fail. But we're also judged much by how we handle the most difficult crises in our personal lives, in our nation's lives, in our corporate lives. And wars have a way of being an auditor, of stripping away the veneer that's over all of us 
and revealing, for better or worse, our character. And I would just make a couple points up front because we're here talking about an alliance. To the Admiral and I, we're both naval officers, and we look at blue space on maps not as obstacles, not as any problems. They are conduits of information, of commerce. There are ways to share ideas. I was happy, eager to fly over this bridge called the Atlantic to come over here because we shared service, the Admiral and I. Admiral Edward and I were both NATO officers. Now, that didn't mean we didn't serve our own nations. Of course we did. But we were alliance officers. We were united. We could walk into each other's command posts and look across the way and nod to one another, and a million words were exchanged in that one nod. I want you all to remember that as people start getting into trying to define what are the problems that we confront right now. I would also say that because we're doing this on the second day, Edward and I do not have to repeat all the great analysis we have heard all day yesterday and with which we are probably at least 90% in agreement with everything, Pierre, once in a while you throw one at us that we, uh, we wonder about, but we're still with you, my friend, all the way. Suffice to say, right now we're reminded of our duty really to the next generation. That's what our duty is. Are we going to turn over the same freedoms intact to the next generation that were given to us by the sacrifice and the conviction and the alliance that others that went before us were willing to turn over to us in good condition. That is, we were born or immigrated into these democracies of our own free will. But that carries with it a responsibility to turn over the freedom to the next generation intact. That is not something we can shy away from and still look ourselves in the mirror and not have to turn away in disgrace. I think too, it's going to take the blood, sweat and tears that a former leader uh, one of our nations said that it was going to take. And yes, for some of it, it's going to cost us our euros and our dollars as well to include 150 euros to fill our gas tank to drive to Normandy to this beautiful corner of France. We should remember, though, what my bride of all of two weeks, yes, recently married, I would just tell you, she reminds me that uh, democracy is not a spectator sport, that we have each a responsibility here so as we talk about what our leaders should be doing, we should also be speaking to ourselves. In this time, we see sovereign challenges around the world. We shouldn't mistake that Putin right now has been cataloged in numerous ways here over the last 24 hours with what he's doing to violate the sovereignty, whether it be of Germany or of the UK, mucking around in French or American elections. He has been doing it now most dramatically and most murderously in the Ukraine. But the same thing is going on with China and the South China Sea, the East China Sea. We've seen the terrorists do it, violating uh, sovereignty. And sovereignty is a key issue in what we're looking at here right now. Most tragic and revealing, as the Polish Prime Minister just said, in Ukraine, but as an auditor of armies and of nations, this war is going to reveal for us exactly, for better or worse, what we stand for. And we're going to have to look to the ways these kind of challenges were addressed in our past because there are solutions there that we can see. President Zelensky standing up valiantly, exhausted, orchestrating and inspiring the Ukrainian people. We see Jen Stoltenberg, our Secretary General of NATO, now on his third extension. Thank God he stayed around for this. 
who has held NATO together through very difficult internal and external pressures. We have seen Ursula von der Leyen, someone who has nothing but her persuasive power. She has no national podium or, or power base, and yet encouraging us to take the stand that she knows we must take in these days. And these are leaders who are carrying out a leader's number one responsibility for an alliance, and that is to define reality. You cannot live in a dream world. You must define the reality and do what is required. You can't say, well, I did my best. I was a leader. I did my best, and then I go to sleep. No, if you're saying that, then you're saying, I'm not going to do what is required today and stay awake and do it right now. You cannot get away with just doing your best as a leader. I think we see in Putin a creature straight out of Dostoevsky. He sees Russia surrounded by nightmares. He's been very well documented in the last couple of days. I won't waste time on that, repeating what I've heard. But certainly, I think that his fear of democracy is palpable. Uh, there's something Alexei de Tocqueville wrote in On Democracy about this, irrelevant today as it was in 1831, when as a young man, he wrote it for all of us. He said there that the Anglo-American, and I would only plug in all democracies, gives free scope to the unguided exertions and common sense of the citizens. The Russian centers all authority of society in a single arm. The principal instrument of democracy is freedom. The principal instrument of Russia is servitude. He just summed it up right there, what we face right now today in 2022. So the battle is joined today in the Ukraine between freedom and servitude and in the seminal challenge of our times. His strategic folly had been well demonstrated. Putin's strategic folly has been well demonstrated. You don't have Finland and Sweden joining NATO uh, without showing just how stupid it was to initiate this unneeded war. His operationally stupid approach had been revealed to the entire world that his pathetic army has tactically performed very poorly. And economically, I think that as long as the democracies do not lose heart, he has lost the European energy market share forever. He has doomed it for Russia so long as we hold together. He must be stopped, and the alliance is the primary tool. It is fit for its time. It must be adjusted. It must be adapted to the specific threat. But it is fit as it should be. And we must play this ball where it lies right now. Looking back and saying we missed something, we didn't realize reality, we denied reality, maybe so, uh, maybe not. 2008, NATO in the multiple futures document said a resurgent Russia was a potential enemy for NATO, a threat to NATO. In 2018, which is four years ago, the United States changed its entire national defense strategy to recognize great power competition with China and with Russia, but we didn't follow through on it. And now we're going to have to shoulder aside the geoeconomic approach we had before and replace with, with the geopolitical aspects that have now basically come trumpeting in through the bombing of Kiev and other places. And out of this forge, you see actually what Putin is doing is forging a stronger NATO and a stronger European Union so long as we don't lose our faith in one another. We wanted to use diplomacy. Putin said, I don't care. And he simply ignored it. And so we are going to now have to replace in the forefront, diplomacy is going to have to be replaced with deterrence. We are going to have to be able to deter him. 
And with President Xi and President Putin now having in their words and deeds welded together the Indo-Pacific with the Euro-Atlantic theaters, we're going to have to confront that. And I think NATO showed the willingness to do so here in Madrid, and certainly the lines are drawn on that. But we are going to have to turn our back on these last dishonest decades and confront reality now and simply get over looking backwards and, and condemning who missed this or that. There, once in a while, I love reading history because it tells me how other men and women dealt successfully or unsuccessfully with past similar problems. And I found a speech by Walter Lippmann, 1940s, talking to his 1910 graduating class from Yale College in America, 1940. Think what was happening right here in 1940. And he writes, or he spoke, he said, upon the standard to which the good and honest will now repair, it is written, you have lived life the easy way. Henceforth, you will live the hard way. You came into a great heritage made by the insight and the sweat and the blood of inspired and devoted and courageous men and women. Thoughtlessly and in utmost self-indulgence, you have all but squandered this inheritance. Now, only by the heroic virtues that made this inheritance can you restore it once again. You took the good things for granted, now you must earn them again. For every right that you cherish, you have a duty which you must fulfill. For every hope that you entertain, you have a task that you must perform. And for every good that you wish to preserve, you have to sacrifice your comfort and your ease. There is nothing for nothing any longer. I think the sooner we come to grips with that reality and realize NATO is the primary tool for banding together as democracies did on these beaches a few years ago. The sooner we do that, the better it is for the next generation. Over to you, sir. So with that introduction, I want to see if I can foment some discussion about the NATO alliance and the extent to which it remains fit to purpose and the extent to which changes should be wrought. So, Admiral Giot, when you and I were chatting the other day, you mentioned that the U.S. and Europe, European nations, looked at NATO differently because the U.S. is an island and Europe obviously isn't. So, as a very basic question, what do you see the NATO alliance being for? I think we shouldn't um, forget what the Atlantic Alliance is. It's not a political alliance. It's an alliance which is of military nature, the goal of which is to wage war and to push back an enemy. And in any alliance, obviously, there are, there's an upside and one or two disadvantages. The first virtue of this alliance, how can I put it, is an exchange of services. You help me, I'll help you. All right, we can see, you know, when you have a joint enemy, then, you know, that's good because you can identify who the enemy is. This is what has been done at last in Madrid in you know saying right is russia and the second challenge of course there's a it's in a rank order the second is china now an alliance is also constantly looking for a compromise some middle ground because you have to agree on the decisions you're going to be taking and as you can well imagine when you're 30 is more difficult than when you're nine in 1949 there are nine members it's more difficult now at 50 and even more when sweden and finland will have joined our ranks but it's day in day out it's work Turkey shows that day in, day out. And I would actually say in, within NATO, the only empire is Turkey. 
Mr. Erdogan's Turkey sees itself as a re-emergence of the Ottoman Empire. So an alliance is also peace of mind, because when you've got an ally, then collectively you feel safeguarded and you can do other things and you can devote your efforts to public interest, developing trade or, or even social dimension. It's also a, a desire to improve. You can always improve and then the younger generation needs to take over from where you left off. And primarily, and Jim referred to that just a moment ago, you know, working together. And Jim, of course, was the first Supreme Allied Commander Transformation Engine yeah, that was when, when was that? That was 2008, 2010? 2007. Turned it over to a French general. But um, there are certain constraints involved here in any alliance, as you'd expect. And this is why, you know, you don't want to compare NATO with the EU. They're two different animals. They bear no resemblance to each other. Different things. And then, of course, you need to be responsive. Responsive when the unlikely occurs, even though intelligence services in the UK and America saw very clearly the potential or even the absolute certainty of a Russian evasion. The French hadn't seen that. Don't you need to point that out. But you then need to respond quickly. And I would say that once again, we are grappling with numbers. I've talked about consensus, some middle ground, and the, necess the necessity there too. Any decision within NATO is a consensus decision. In other words, unanimous. Consensus means unanimous. There's another way of saying, and I'll take a caricature example, Luxembourg can block everything. Yeah? Or Iceland who has no armed forces, can also stop everything. Everything can grind to a halt. Iceland needs to say yes, needs to vote yes, and that, of course, can take time. But we shouldn't lose sight of that. And then an alliance also has another problem. It's a problem that it, well, appear for the Europeans have been grappling with for the last 30 years, at least from 1991, since the explosion of the or implosion of the USSR, namely it's the other chap who's going to do the job. It's the other guy. And the other guy generally is the other guy. It's the United States. And since 1991, only two countries outside of the USA have still made an effort. Uh, inadequate, I would recognize. It's in a rank order in terms of how much they're doing, the UK and France, you know, rank order of how much effort they've lumped up. Andrew talked earlier on, didn't he, about 1.54%. What does it equate to in terms of military expenditure? Well, I can tell you, in some major European countries, it even dwindled down to zero, eight, nine percent, something like that, I think. So anyway, it's, you know, it's ridiculous. It's small beer. And I say this as a former senior military official, it's small beer. In France, we went down quite considerably. We've gone up. I'd like to go up even further. And then lastly, NATO, let's not forget, is a, is a what? Well, I'm sorry, the United States, 350 million inhabitants. And We've got what with in Europe, we've got pretty much the same order of things. GDP, which is heavy duty in the United States. And in other countries, about 30 million inhabitants. I mean, very small in Luxembourg, for example. There's a, a you know, there's an order of magnitude here. I mean, you can't ask the same thing, particularly in thinking about strategic thinking. You can't ask uh, that of company of countries rather are fully enclaved don't have any any seaboard and we're both navy officers aren't we I mean we can we can identify with that and these countries that don't necessarily have the same potential as we do and then the last point before we address ourselves to this matter of the island the island world uh, to refer us back to 
an American strategist. Anyway, let's not forget that NATO doesn't have any troops per se. Yeah? NATO uses, draws on the troops supplied by member states. All right? So apart from the radar planes that uh, are uh, monitoring our skies that are very much part and parcel of NATO's property, if you will, and there's an oceanographic uh, vessel and one or two other things, but no, otherwise there's no hardware. There's no NATO hardware. And I don't know why there would be a European army either, for that matter. But anyway, we can re we can revisit that point if you if you if you wish, because that's fake news for me. A European army, fake news. Anyway, I'm only that's, I'm speaking from a personal perspective, as you can imagine. I'm not I'm not engaging any uh, official discourse on the part of the French government. But NATO, it has a bit of a problem that, generally speaking, it manages to iron out about perceiving what the threat is in the United States and Canada. It's a massive island, isn't it, or taken as one. You've got the Pacific on one side, and you've got the United States on the other, and you don't have any territorial link with the potential enemy, do you? So you have not the same perception at all of what I would describe the, the kinetics of threats. The Polish, for example, we, we heard this through the mouth of the uh, prime minister. They have a direct border, a physical border. You know, so it's not tomorrow morning, mate. It's in an hour that things can, things can turn. I mean, 10 minutes, things can turn sour. So, you know, necessarily, you don't have exactly the same perception of a threat. So the first thing you need to have is a perception, not the same perception at least, but the perception of the threat, which is shared. Now, when you have a shared perception, such as we do now within NATO, when you have that uh, shared perception of the threat, well, then you can set in motion... And this is the whole point of NATO. You can implement a strategy or the modus operandi, which are shared. And as you know, NATO boils down to three things. It's a general secretariat and the Council of North Atlantic with ambassadors. And Madame Berg yesterday sat upon that. These are civilians. And then you've got two military commands. One, which is the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, which is based in Belgium, in Mons. And then you also have one which is based in Norfolk, in Virginia, which is the Supreme Allied Commander Transformation. And the second one is more important, paradoxically, than the first. Why do I say that? Well, because it's the second one which determines the standards, the common standards, the criteria of usage, the type of training, the experiments that need to be run. So if one day, let's, I know, let's just imagine the worst case scenario that uh, nuclear deterrent doesn't work and we're fighting with the Russian armed forces. It's not one single country that will be fighting, it's several countries. And if you wanted to have the impact of one army, perhaps we'll revisit that later on. But to do that, you need to be interoperable, as we call it. And in order... And the warrant is the Allied commandment, based in old folks. So this is absolutely crucial. And it's also key that because the United States are an island, this commandment, and some want it to be based in Europe, remains in the United States, including to record for people at Pentagon who have been a little bit too much or uniquely turned towards Pacific, that watch it, there is something else on the other side. You've got Atlantic on one side, then a continent of Europe, then a bad guy named Putin. And the same token on the other of the top of the Pacific. Now, this difference of approach 
is solved, this contradiction, so to speak, is solved by discussions and by discussions that, as a paradox, are happening more on a military level uh, in Norfolk on the one hand, but also in Secure, which are the operational guys, that in the Council of North Atlantic, there is a wonderful organization, but doesn't has any responsibility of implementation or decision. It's the general secretary. So this is roughly what I wanted to say as liminary so that we can discuss with you and you can ask questions on what is the future for what alliance. I want to give you an opportunity to respond. And I wonder if you could also address the question of what is America's role in this alliance and how has that role evolved? Is it still the indispensable nation? And how might it continue to evolve as populism grows, not just in the U.S., but globally? Well, America's role, it's hard to explain how reluctant a sheriff on the world stage that America is. We took it on, I would say, reluctantly after World War II. There is a natural, because of the size of our island country, a natural inclination to isolationism. But it had to be taught to me by a foreigner, not a NATO ambassador, but an ambassador from a democracy, when he said America, after World War II, made the single most self-sacrificial pledge in world history. Now, I thought, I know as much about American history, I hope, as this ambassador from a foreign country. So I start going through it. I think the United Nations, well, that was all of us fighting together at that time, banding together. And by the way, one of the original signatories was a nation even recognized by Joe Stalin named the Ukraine, by the way, for those who doubt sovereignty of Ukraine. that He said, no, no, not the United Nations. We all work together on that. That America was key to it, but I said, oh, you must mean Bretton Woods. You know, you and I know it today as the IMF, the World Bank. When people are losing all hope and faith that they can create wealth, their kids will not have a better life. They didn't have to turn to a fascist to make the trains run on time that was a lender of last resort. I said, no, he said, that's just money. So now I'm starting to run out. Said, oh, it's the Marshall Plan said, no, he said, that just shows what a different kind of victory you were that a couple years after what had happened with the fascists, you would hold out your hand to the German and Italian and Japanese people and welcome them back into the community of nations. So I'm running out of options here. And he said it was NATO. He said, you could have looked at Europe and said, for that's twice in 30 years, you dragged us into your wars and we lost hundreds of thousands of our boys. We're through. We're going to turn to Asia and Latin America, Africa, the Middle East. You're on your own with the Soviet Union and the group of Soviet forces, Germany. He said, instead, you pledged 100 million dead Americans in a nuclear war to protect democracy in Western Europe. It took a foreigner to teach that to me. I didn't learn that in American history class. Now, you may quibble with him and say that wasn't the whole story or anything else, but that was one person's view of America's role in NATO. Now, today, we are no longer seeing a devastated Europe, as the Admiral just said, Edward just said. This is a large country. It's a very robust economy across Europe. It's the richest Europe there's ever been. And so there does come a point where I walk in now as unexpectedly the Secretary of Defense, having once been a Supreme Allied Commander, 
walked into the room at Brussels and I said, you were warned about this by many people and it's now manifested politically that I cannot go back to America and tell the parents there that they must sacrifice for the future freedom of your children that you're not willing to make an equal sacrifice for. I said, that is what I've got to come and tell you. I love every one of you. I admire you. I fought alongside some of you. But I said, you've got to hear this message. America will be with you. As Churchill put it, trust the Americans when they've exhausted all possible alternatives. The Americans will do the right thing. They'll be there. But we've all got to work together. So it's more of a partnership today. I think we're willing to carry out our role. But we also need European leadership by example. And that, as the Admiral just said, consensus. That's every nation has a role to play. And that's a responsibility, but it's a shared one. So as a follow-up to that, and then I actually want to start opening it up and taking some questions from the audience, if folks want to start thinking about it. But as a follow-up to that question around America's role, I want to see if we can think a little bit more tactically about how U.S. and Europe should actually share those security responsibilities. I mean, obviously, European nations have begun paying more into their militaries. What else do you think should be happening? Well, it's not only a question of paying more in finance. It's a question of will. And most unfortunately, as I said before, for years, only two nations had the will. And one of them was not paying enough. Okay, it's improving, thank God. What we heard, uh, Jim and myself, in Brussels so often was burden sharing. Because the US, rightfully, were thinking that some European, not all, some European countries were not spending enough. As a matter of fact, it changed a lot. The perception of it changed in the early 2000s when the Baltic states and Poland, well, the former Comic-Con, were so packed. Uh, stepped in, because they feared so much the ex-Soviet Union, rightfully, obviously, that uh, they were still spending a lot. But we had, we in the military had a lot of trouble explaining to uh, not our politicians, to our budgetary people and government that we needed stockpiles. Do you imagine that one-third of the real French firepower in long-range guns has been donated to Ukraine. One-third. Only 18 guns. It means that we have a very far too low stockpile. And Andrew mentioned it. That's obvious, and it has been obvious for years and years. And this is one of the things we have to spend on. You can build a rifle bullet in a few weeks, you build a gun in several months. You build a ship in a few years. And you build a missile in two to five years. I'm not talking about strategic ones. Talking about the one you would use, I would say, in Ukraine today on an everyday basis. And this is one of the things Europeans have to do. And of course, as all this equipment we are lacking today, all this ammunition and replenishment and uh, logistics, uh, spare parts we are lacking today, have to be as much as possible 
not interchangeable, but interoperable. Today, the French long-range guns can use Dutch, American, German ammunition, and vice versa. That's good. But it has not always been the case, and when you have too many sorts of APCs, armored personnel carriers, it means you have too many lots of spare parts, too many training of mechanics. If you have five or six, it's okay. But if we do not take care, we will provide Ukrainian forces with 20 different types. Far too much. Far too much. And this is a European problem because we have so many different industries which never wanted to merge, not by themselves, because of their government, including the French one. I mean, we are, we are in Europe, continental Europe. That this is one of the things we must correct as soon as possible. And if the Ukrainian crisis is a wake-up call, okay, that will be fine. Meanwhile, as President Chirac said, the house is burning. So our problem is not in 10 or 15 years or 50 years. It is now. And we have to find solutions now. And there we can help collectively on the European part. I want to very quickly follow up on this and see if both of you actually could offer an assessment of the military aid that both the European Union as well as the U.S. has on the one hand committed and on the other hand delivered. Because obviously those are two separate things, you know, where there have been a number of delays. And specifically, if you can speak to any of the challenges with respect to delivering that military aid, I feel like a lot of folks just assume that, you know, as soon as military aid is committed, it materializes. But of course, there are challenges with respect to transportation, maintenance, different types of armaments and so forth. And so anyway, I'd be very curious to get each of your assessment as to what that looks like. Well, it's always difficult, especially in the middle of a war, to be integrating a lot of different varied weapon systems. They all require different spare parts. Sometimes they require different caliber ammunition. You have to make certain the right ammunition gets delivered to the right place with the right spare parts. Things break in war all the time. There's different training requirements, that sort of thing. So there's a capacity of any force to integrate. And when you reach that capacity, if you add more at that point, you're not adding capability. You're just adding more problems for them. So it is a challenge. I think the most important thing is to remove our internal constraints on what we're providing to them right now and have a clearinghouse. And we have one. It is working. That's determining what should be the priority, what should get priority on transportation, who needs to have trainers and what position. It, it is working. But right now, it's like a rather narrow funnel and a lot of things are being packed into it. I think it's going pretty well. I think we are finally realizing that if it defends Ukraine, you don't need to put any limits on it right now. There's still some there, but that's a political decision, not a military. The Ukrainians are proving quite capable of learning quickly how to use complex systems. We mustn't forget that the training of the Ukrainian armed forces began as soon as 2014. And the main donors and benefactors were the Brits. And by the way, the miracle, the Ukrainian miracle is uh, 
owes a lot to British training and British doctrine fighting the Russians. Now, the only real difficulty we can face collectively in NATO or outside NATO is the chemin de crête, not to become co-belligerent. And we saw what it means. You remember a few weeks ago, many people were talking about providing MiG-29s to Ukraine. Trouble is, they have to take off somewhere. And even if you have changed their flag and their markings, would they take off from Poland immediately? In the law of war, Poland would be accused to be a co-belligerent. So you're not going to transfer a MiG-29 to rebuild it on the other side of the, <laughs> of the border. I mean, it's difficult. It's much easier for ground equipment, not even speaking of naval equipment. They have no more in Ukraine right now. It's much easier for missiles. For aircraft and helicopters, it's really a difficulty because we do not want up to now and I would say, thank God, on a personal point of view, uh, we do not want to be uh, seen by the Russian as co-belligerent. Why? Because then we would really enter the dialectics of nuclear deterrence. That's a reason why we have to stick there. General uh, Mattis, I want to give you an opportunity to respond, and especially to the point about the difficulties transferring fighter jets and aircraft. Well, there are ways to do it. It is difficult, and you have to do it legally, or you engage in a culpability that has to be addressed. But there's a broader issue there that my shipmate just brought up, and that is the nuclear issue. And the same Americans and Brits who identified that Putin was going to invade months in advance, and we knew exactly what he was going to do because we were reading his mail, we knew it. And the same people who identified that problem, they are saying today that you should not dismiss this nuclear threat out of hand. You cannot just wish it away. Remember, leaders must confront reality, define reality. But there is a time, for those of us who have my color hair, the Politburo would never have permitted the Soviet leader to talk in such a cavalier way about using nuclear weapons. This is because it's now down to one person and the whole world has to be aware of this, that nuclear deterrence has been lowered. And by the pathetic example of the Russian army, the Russians are actually in more danger conventionally, which means they may have no alternative but to go to a nuclear weapon much earlier than many of us had dismissed earlier in this campaign. So I think that the recognition that nuclear arms are being now bandied about by Putin, and he's been doing this for years, by the way. He's threatened Danish warships with a nuclear strike. He's had other cavalier discussions about it. We are going to have to find a way by being very strong together, because I've never seen peace maintained in my reading of history by weakness. We are going to have to be very strong and make it very clear that NATO is a nuclear-armed alliance for a reason. Don't cross us on this, because whether it be the transfer of fighter jets or some manufactured reason to set off a nuclear weapon somewhere over the Black Sea, it is something we have to consider, and we must not say we are going to be accepting nuclear blackmail, and now anytime he uses, trots out this example of, don't cross me, I may have to use a nuke, 
Well, at that point, the entire world order of peace and prosperity is now jeopardized. And I think that's a piece that, Edward, I, I would agree with you, and I appreciate you bringing that piece up right here, because it has not been talked about, I think, earlier in this discussion. And so does that imply that there are or there aren't red lines with respect to the material and weapons that we can or cannot be providing? I would not put red lines on anything that allows Ukraine to defend itself from its citizens being murdered. I have nothing to add to that. All right, questions. And then please just say your name and your affiliation. Hi, thank you so much, Uriel. Uh, my name's Alice. I'm a fund manager based in London. And my question is for General Mattis. Yesterday, in response to a question, Ms. Mary Kissel made a very, very interesting point that of the last four administrations, only the last one in which you served as Secretary of Defense was uh, Russia did not invade another country. So my question is, do you believe that this is more than incidental, as was implied? And if so, you know, was there a method to the madness that we can learn a lesson from for future administrations? I'd be careful about drawing lessons, at least on that score. I can't get inside Putin's head. And so anyone who speculates on that, I think is doing just that speculating. There is not enough data to really prove what is happening there. Remember, Putin is an incrementalist. He did something inside Moscow, got away with it. He did something in Georgia. He did something in Chechnya, Georgia. He got away with it. He got away with it. Very mild response, if any. 2014, very timid, tentative sanctions. He, he seems to gather a little bit of thought, and then he jumps. And then he watches for more data, and then he jumps. And I think we may have just had an interregnum there that I can't give a cause and effect. Uh, in the very back. Thank you very much. Alessia Kromichuk, uh, director of the Ukrainian. I just want to continue this conversation about the nuclear threat. And thanks very much for bringing it up. I was surprised it didn't come up yesterday. So my question is, obviously, Russia's using it uh, as, a, as a threat for the rest of the world. But the rest of the world is also using it as an excuse not to do more. My question is, are we prepared for a different kind of nuclear threat? For instance, Russia occupied Chernobyl region for a while, and we were just lucky that nothing uh, terrible happened. It already hit the largest nuclear station uh, in Europe, outside of Zaporizhia. We were lucky that the fire caused wasn't in one of the reactors. It can hit it again. Uh, what happens then? Admiral? Uh, okay, uh, first, beware of the confusion between civilian nuclear power plants and nuclear weapons. It's really so different. What uh, the Russians did in occupying Chernobyl was what I would call, uh, and this is uh, very kind, immature. They behaved like children, not grown-ups, for Chernobyl. Now, there is, by essence, no preparation against a nuclear strike. What you have to take into account is the doctrine, the official doctrine. We know quite well the Russian official doctrine. Uh, which was renewed and republished, I think, in 2019, something like this. And for them, basically, and I'm not saying that this is what Putin has in mind. We don't know what he has in mind, as Jim said. We can use, on a tactical level, a nuclear weapon when the front line 
is broken. And we will use it uh, to uh, gain some time, to buy time, in order to rebuild our forces, to fill the gap. Okay, up today, there is no front line which has been crushed in Ukraine, seen from a Russian perspective, except on the information field, which is different. And this comes to what was just said. Before you had a Politburo, now you have Putin alone by himself, and he would be using his defense minister and his chief of defense staff, Gerasimov. And these are the three people only uh, who would eventually uh, envision to use a nuclear trigger. If you prepare yourself, it means in the, the nuclear dialectics that if you prepare yourself too much, I say too much because everything is, it's a very thin paper between crossing the line or just gaining in credibility. <clears throat> if we prepare ourselves, first result will be a terrible impact on your own population and on their own feeling. You will probably create some panic. So you have to be careful. On the other hand, you have to be credible for your opponent to understand that he cannot win. And on the contrary, he will lose something. For Putin, what can he lose? Population, probably. A part of his own industry. And a part of his own armed forces. Because you have some concentration somewhere. I don't know what are today's targets. Including either for Great Britain, the US, France, or in the NATO even if uh, those are nuclear, American nuclear bombs. But the only real problem we face is how will he react? There is no rationality available in Putin, obviously. If he had been a strategist, had he been rational, he would never have uh, invaded Crimea in 2014 because he knew that in 2016 there would have been a vote under the UN umbrella to decide by the inhabitants of Crimea whether they wanted to join Russia or not. He just had to wait for 18 months. Okay, he thought he had a flaw in the Western position. And as Jim said, he jumped. So now what can he say? What can he do? I don't know. It is probably not the most obvious thing he would do but as soon as nuclear deterrence is concerned, you cannot bet. You can never bet on it, on one way or the other. Uh, Jim, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I would just add that, yes, NATO is prepared for anything that Putin throws at it. That it's why it's been such a successful NATO alliance. It's always had problems at times, and we'll get all talking about where we differ and where we disagree on things. But on the fundamentals, they're strong. The NATO alliance has always worked through the problems, and I'm very confident that NATO is in a deterrent mode against any kind of use, initial use of nuclear weapons. But at the same time, the way, the reason it's a deterrent is because he's got the capability, and we have to take it seriously. 
but we do not have to uh, kowtow to it. As serious and as horrible as these weapons are, we cannot surrender who we are and what we stand for because he gets up and makes this kind of threat. NATO's ready. I want to follow up quickly on that. What would the West or what should the West do, not in the case of a nuclear strike, but in the case something happens with a civilian nuclear reactor? Because as was pointed out, there have been a number of close calls already. And to your point, the Russians' behavior is such that makes, even if it's accidental, an incident increasingly likely. So what should the Western response be? Well, if I may, that's a tough one. (laughs) I don't know what we should do. I know on a technical point of view what we could do, but obviously if this happened, because you have Chernobyl, which is kind of specific bunker, but you have a Zaporizhia too, and the power plants, it might be, in my opinion, a game changer in the calculus our government and strategists have to do. Because the trouble with nuclear energy has always been the same. Once it is out, you just neutralize a whole country or a whole area. Nobody is going to live in Chernobyl for the next 200 years. So it could be a game changer. But I don't know at which extent. Maybe Jim has an idea on that. General? I mean, it's one thing if Chernobyl leaks because of the Russian malfeasance and criminal acts. We do have capabilities in the West to go in and and help recover the area, get the people out who are affected, that sort of thing. But it's very much a damage control situation. You're not going to recover on that area. But at that point, I think that it would be very hard for some of the large nations that have blocked the United Nations from doing anything here when that sort of a threat starts coming out, starts going over borders, the air picks up the contamination. Now it may be time for more nations that have been abstaining to find their manhood, to find their womanhood, to stand up and say enough is enough. Right now it's contained inside Ukraine, so some of those nations take a hands-off view. I think if there was a nuclear leak initiated by the Russians, much less a use of a nuclear weapon, I think that would really strip away any last refuge for those who want to be irresponsible about the kind of world Putin is creating here. So to be clear, the West, you believe, would and certainly should respond, not just in a damage control mode, but in a punitive offensive mode with respect to Russia. Yeah, it's too sensitive an issue to get into speculation and what ifs, because there's a host of factors. But NATO, I believe, is prepared with its nuclear deterrent to do what is necessary That doesn't mean that if Russia does something, NATO automatically does something either. But having been in office, there's a French term, uh, devoir de reserve. Uh, I think I have a duty to remain somewhat quiet on this issue and leave it to those who carry the awful burden for having to deal with something like this. And believe me, we may have forgotten what we all knew 50 years ago. These weapons are horrible. We are not doing what we need to do to get arms control regenerated. We can't do it right now because it requires trust, even grudging trust, as we saw during the the Reagan years when we were able to remove 75% of the nuclear weapons. We do not have the level of respect for the international system and the trust that we even had in those days, thanks to Putin shredding it. 
So right now, we just leave this with the leaders that we've elected to have to deal with this awful threat and the alliance that is prepared to give options to our political leaders. Uh, Pavel? Thank you, so, thank you so much. Pavel Fischer, uh, uh, Czech senator. I have a question to uh, James Mattis. Could you just give us an example of this define reality approach? Let's take an example that uh, we are meeting people working in the agriculture in Normandy in September, October. Prices are skyrocketing. What is the wording that you would select to define the reality in order to mobilize them and to increase the resilience of our societies? Well, it, it's a great question, Paolo, and thank you, because we're here at the home of Alexei de Tocqueville, who said the people get a say-so. So it's natural that we would have to be able to explain this in compelling, persuasive terms. And so I look to history. How have people dealt with just terrible problems when their people had to make sacrifice? And you can look at de Gaulle, who had nothing but his name. He's forced out of his country. It's fallen. And what did he do to orchestrate the French resistance at home, to draw French boys overseas into an army and come back across these beaches with the Allied forces? What did Winston Churchill do with his back against the Atlantic and the Atlantic seaboard held by the fascists? And we are going to have to bring in leaders who are up to the task. Gary made a point yesterday, Gary Kasparov, about the role of President Zelensky. I mean, it's, it, the democracy is one thing about their open nature. They have a, an ability to find within them the leader who is needed at that time. And right now, we have gone through a period when executive-level leadership in a number of the Western capitals has perhaps not been willing to confront the reality. I think the most important thing to do right now is to have leaders who will define the problem. Well, let me back off. Einstein, I understand, was a pretty smart fellow. And he said, if given one hour to save the world, how would he compose his thinking? He's alleged to have said, I spend 55 minutes defining the problem. And once I got consensus on the problem, I'd save the world in five minutes. We need to spend the time bringing everyone to confront what Walter Lippmann saw in 1940 and told his college classmates of 1910, it's over. You're not going to live easy and free with no kind of expenditure of blood, sweat, and tears. And I think it's going to take that sort of definition of a problem of what is Ukraine fighting for, and that has got to be brought home, not just to the head, but to the heart of our population. And I'm confident that the, uh, I mean, I was an infantry officer in the Marine Infantry. It's named for infant soldier, young soldier. I have seen young Americans and I've served alongside. I've had the privilege of fighting many times. I've never fought in an all-American foreign nation. I've seen young men in my case, because it was infantry, young men, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, willing to put it all on the line, just like I heard yesterday from a young Ukrainian sitting up here saying, if he's the last Ukrainian standing, he'll still fight. There are things worth fighting for, and we're going to have to have leaders fit for our time, able to build consensus on what is the problem. And then I honestly believe that we can pay 150 euros to fill our gas tank, and we'll be proud of it, knowing we're part of the solution.
we'll return to the audience questions in just a moment. But in terms of defining the problem, I actually think this is an interesting question for us, and it's a very basic one. But I think kind of going back to those basics, we've heard a number of folks claim that the U.S. and powerful nations like France don't have a security interest in a place like Ukraine, that they shouldn't be sacrificing 150 euros per gallon. And many of us likely... Uh, per tank. Per tank. Please, yeah. Per tank. There's a limit here, you know. <laughs> many of us likely, hopefully, disagree with that. But I wonder if each of you could articulate, as you see them, your respective nations' security interests, not just in Ukraine, but worldwide, in defending smaller countries against stronger, more powerful neighbors that might threaten their sovereignty. It has always been a tough question because of history, because specifically, more specifically in Europe, we've been fighting each other for centuries. And uh, the people of each uh, European country has a long memory, thank God, sometimes. I mean, it's very useful. But obviously, when you suggest to your neighbor that you could protect him, his first reaction will be, oh, what is he talking about? Is he becoming... Uh, imperialistic again, or arrogant again? Why is he telling me that? Even if the question is as simple as to protect my own interest, I have a necessity to protect my neighbors. And we in France experienced it twice, at least. If you remember in 1994, no, 1996, sorry, uh, um, Alain Juppé, who was here yesterday, was, uh, as a prime minister, say that... Uh, Alongside with the American nuclear umbrella and NATO nuclear umbrella, Europe could benefit of the French nuclear umbrella. And the reasoning behind that strange proposal, seen as very strange by other people, was if Berlin is attacked, well, we'll have a nuclear cloud coming over. We'll have refugees, so we don't want Berlin to be attacked. So we can help. And by the way, we can coordinate with the US and, if necessary, with NATO. And everybody in Europe said, mind your business. Mind your own business, which is crazy. President Macron roughly said the same thing with another wording two years ago. And it was very polite this time, but very negative answer up to now. And I think it is quite sad even if everybody knows, and this is in the French very official doctrine, that if one of our European neighbors, not next door, European neighbor, is attacked, we will nearly automatically enter a nuclear deterrence reasoning. But I cannot have a better answer than that. It's uh, History has... Uh, is a very heavy weight, overweight sometimes. General, and I'll add a, one complicating note about obviously China's intentions with respect to Taiwan. So not exactly close to our borders, not in Europe, but certainly something that at least the U.S. has articulated very clearly would not be accepted. Well, I think the democratic allies, but I would even expand it beyond that. I think NATO is the rallying flag for any nation that values its sovereignty. I mean, we're not going to agree with the Vietnamese form of government in America. We're just not going to do it. 
That's not to say that in this contest of what kind of world order we want, we cannot even find common cause with Vietnam or with Saudi Arabia or any other country that believes in sovereignty. If we're trying to defend sovereignty, then let's make as big a tent as possible. We won't always agree with who we're fighting alongside for the security interests, but I'm quite certain that FDR did not agree wholly with Joseph Stalin's approach to governance, okay? But you can find common cause, especially remember what made NATO, prove NATO to be the most successful military alliance in history. It wasn't fighting wars, it was preventing wars. So let's get back to first principles here that was mentioned in the last session with Dana's uh, panel. And let's remember what we're out to do. We're out to deter Russia, to stop their colonial outreach, and say, you've got to stop this. It's over where one country imposes its will on another. And that's anywhere in the world. And that example will resonate to the Indo-Pacific if we make it very clear. But I've fought many times. I've never fought on a battlefield with only American troops. And it is hard to do. We're going to have to create strategies that take into account different nations' interests. You can do it. It's hard work. History will never accept, well, because it was hard, we couldn't do it. Hard is simply the definition of what we have to do. And remember on strategy, it's like magnetism. All it's going to do is align many, many small things partially. Partially aligning many small things. Every nation is not going to agree on every particular. But if we all agree that sovereignty is critical, that peace is what we want, that prosperity is only possible if we keep the peace, you can draw a pretty big tent there. And I would expand the idea of NATO's deterrent capability, nuclear, conventional, all based on strength, as a rallying point for a world that's going to become more and more aware that everyone's vulnerable if we don't stand up to what's going on in Ukraine right now with the sense of urgency that Admiral Edward brought up. You've got the house is on fire now. You've got to act now. You don't want some plan that's going to start going into effect 10 years now. You can start those things now. Don't rely on it to restore the peace in Ukraine. We've got to work now. If I may, to, to add uh, just a few words about sovereignty. For Europe, sovereignty can be only the sum of national sovereignties. Then you will have a European sovereignty. Otherwise, it would mean that all our countries disappear. One government, if you have one government, if you have one only strategic plan, then you will be able to have European army. Otherwise, it's not possible. You can have a European armed forces effect, which is very precisely what was called the European pillar of NATO, as you remember, Jim. But the idea of an army by itself, or a sovereignty standing alone, is just not in our lifetime. In yeah. 100 years, I don't know. How do you think about that construction when the threat is internal? to a country, so Syria with respect to the US, Libya, Mali with respect to France? Well, it, the threat was not really internal, it was external, but sure. giving us, yeah. well, providing us with internal threats. What is very interesting is the evolution of European countries. 
in 2011, President Obama, uh, and Jim does remember that, didn't like it at all when David Cameron and Nicolas Sarkozy decided that enough was enough with uh, Muammar Gaddafi, who was beginning to stab to death his own people. That's why we stepped in. When the Mali affair came, two years later, the European countries were much more sympathetic to what the French armed forces were doing under the orders of our president, of course, who is uh, the commander-in-chief. And uh, two years ago, including some Baltic states who are sending special forces in Mali alongside the French special, special forces. So things are moving, thank God, quite slowly, but we probably cannot go faster, any faster. But we still have a very, very, very long way to go to have a unique country in Europe. General, anything to add? Well, every country has to strengthen itself through education, opportunity for its young people, so they have a sense of hope in their future, that democracy can, in fact, address the fundamental problems in each society. We go through raucous periods at times, and people will suddenly say, oh, democracy is, is over. No, it's not. No, it's not. Democracy has a lot of strength inherent to it. It's not going to be always pretty and easy, and America's rather muscular way of dealing with things can alarm our allies. But at the end of the day, we'll be there. I, I mean, the bottom line, if each country works on its own internal cohesion, and if we have a strategy that is put together among allies, and the only thing harder than fighting with allies is fighting without them, and that's why NATO was so successful and we could hold together, as long as we have those two things going on, then, you know, we'll be okay. But democracy is not ordained to be survivable. It's not ordained as the best. It is a participatory sport, and everyone's got to be in there. And right now, there's a lot of question in the social media age, can democracies adapt to it? I'm very confident our young people coming up will figure a way to make democracy work for their generation. But it's up to NATO and our alliance to protect those democracies as we sort out our internal rivalries and that sort of thing. And this is the way it is. I mean, people, human beings are human beings, and we've just got to find a way to allow freedom to flourish without becoming victim to its own freedoms, where someone is using those freedoms to rot it from the inside out. And it's challenging, but uh, we'll do it. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Michał Kosowski. I'm uh, from Poland New Media Institute. And it's great to hear that the Alliance, uh, the NATO is with us and we can, uh, well, and there will be help in, the, in need. But the fact is, if we, uh, we need to survive at least a few days to receive that help, if Putin would like to attack any country in the Central Europe, for example, not only Poland, I mean, Poland, Czech Republic, any of the Baltic states. So, General Admiral, the question is, what should we do to be prepared, to prepare ourselves to receive the help of NATO, to survive those three, two days, to receive the help of the Alliance? Well, I'm pretty sure that your chief of defense staff in Poland is already working with that, including directly with NATO and with his all his counterparts, both on a NATO basis and on a more one-by-one one counterpart basis. Obviously, it would be Article 5, immediately. And as long as Article 5 
is launched, we would come immediately to uh, some extent to envision a nuclear, NATO nuclear planning group. For France, for instance, it, it would probably... I, I'm not in, in the job, so I cannot say. And I'm just talking for myself. But we would probably uh, put our nuclear forces on uh, the highest alert status. Uh, we would do these type of things, sending aircraft, sending more troops. Do you know that France is sending 4,500 troops in Romania today? 4,500 out of 80,000. Once again, it's the numbers have to be compared with the global numbers, relative numbers. I've seen NATO troops in the field fought alongside them. I've seen them training. We've watched the valor and the steadfast capability of the Ukrainian troops. I'd put my money on the Polish army defending Poland right up front. You'll buy the time and we'll be there. I think, too, Putin may have learned a little something here, even in his closed mind, that maybe he doesn't want to try something like this. So when people say, what is the value to Ukraine? Just think of that right there, that that example may actually prevent him from getting brave and feeling brave about this thing, okay? Uh, Luke Foster, I'm a political scientist at the University of Notre Dame. I was very struck by Mr. Modovichki's comment, uh, or his invocation of Leonidas Thermopylae, the Greeks against the Persians. And I was curious whether that's something that you would go to when thinking about these questions of the unity of NATO, what is its basis, not just interest, maybe not just values, because freedom is something that can be used for ill as well as for good, as you said. Democracy is also can be defined by bad actors. So is this a, a kind of civilizational, historical heritage something that you want to invoke, that you'd want your, your Marines and your sailors to have in mind when they face these kinds of threats? Well, the courage, uh, what's in the hearts of your troops, I think a Frenchman by the name of Napoleon once said that what's in there is worth three times what they carry in their weaponry. So whatever you do to maintain the morale and the sense of purpose, the sense of trust and trust and trust, and linking that to a larger organization called Allies, then you create a momentum built on the individual soldier, sailor, airman, marine, and what they think they are fighting for. I'll give you an example. In World War II, in the late 1930s, prior to it, we had fascist parties in the United States. They marched in Fourth of July parades. When the draft started, FDR called a Hollywood director to Washington, D.C. Our president called him in, said, you're going to put together a series of newsreels that are going to be shown to every soldier, sailor, airman, marine, going through basic training. And the title was Why We Fight, number one. Why We Fight, number two. And it laid out the argument. We, we didn't think that they were just automatons. When you bring the young men and women of democracies in, they bring their own mind with them. That's a strength. But you've got to explain what's going on. We faced the same problem before, and we drew on every aspect of our basic principles, first principles to put America together, say that's what we're fighting for. Uh, you, you know the three words that, that characterize the French Republic. We all know them in the democracies, and they have their own way of doing this. 
But the fact that we have different armies in the field is no problem. I've never been on a crowded battlefield. Each one bringing their own country's sovereignty, their own country's beliefs forward, I think will give us a lot of strength going forward. And we've been through this before. Well, I have nothing to add to what James said. It's uh, the difference. Fighting is the same difference as you have between a crew and a team. And we in the military, we want to have crews because it's a 24-7 affair when you are fighting. It's not only on the playing field with some training. And, well, refer to a band of brothers whose last representative died two days ago, I think, as I read, and you know the TV series and the book. It's exactly what we want to get with our own armed forces, between armed forces. When we speak of foreign and allied armed forces, each of us speaks of his brother at arms. And, okay, it says it all. So we have time for one more question uh, right here. Yeah, so we were talking a lot about uh, the nuclear threat, but every time I had the impression that we're talking about is about something abstract, uh, horrible, nightmare, the end of the world. So uh, it might be useful to talk about it more concretely and down to earth. So if we use the example of airplanes uh, coming to Ukraine as a reason for the nuclear threat, which I'm not sure is the reason. So will it provoke the usage of nuclear power or not is an open-ended question. I think rather not. Uh, then in case it will, then the, there is also a question, is it actually possible for Russians to use the uh, nuclear weapons, which I'm also not sure. What is the answer? Because uh, the, uh, it is more complex than just uh, pressing the button. And you know this pretty well as this, the, the whole chain of uh, decision-making, also including the human factor of like using nuclear weapons, which was very rarely used in human history. And then even if it is used, uh, then also there is a technical question of in which state it is in, in, in Russia, in Ukraine, with so very different uh, states of weapons. Then even in case they're capable and they will do it, then uh, also the question is where will they use it? And uh, to me, it seems that it will rather happen in Ukraine than in France, or even if it ha happens in Poland, which is a NATO state, we see that both Ukrainians and uh, Polish people are rather in favor of giving the uh, airplanes. Then another thing is also that they're talking about nuclear weapon. We are rather talking about tactical nuclear weapon and uh, contemporary tactical nuclear weapon, which is absolutely not the same thing uh, as the one which was in Hiroshima, for example. And then uh, we're talking rather about several kilometers radius of uh, destroyed territory, which, in case it is not a big city, is way where smaller damage than which is, has already been caused uh, to Ukraine. So what I mean that in case Russia throws nuclear bomb on Ukraine, the damage will be less 
than which has already uh, been uh, done here. So uh, all, all this, just to say uh, that, again, we are dealing with uh, uh, Russia as a terrorist state, I'm convinced. And then as terrorism, we know they use blackmailing and then we have to deal with it correspondingly. Uh, it does not mean uh, just simply deny the, the uh, the, the threat, but looking at it in a realistic uh, way and not being of it too much uh, afraid seems to me correctly. But uh, again, for, for me, I uh, try to provide the perspective uh, which is rather the Ukrainian one, so it would be interesting to see um, the, the, the transatlantic one. So, just to clarify, the, the idea here is that since Ukraine and Poland are the ones taking the risk to a certain extent, you know, should the West defer to them with respect to responding to Putin's threats? Well, th thank you for your comment. First, I think the right thing to do is to provide Ukraine right now with long-range anti-aircraft missiles. First things first. Second, uh, obviously, it would not be exactly the same thing if... Poland was victim of a side effect of a nuclear attack, as if the side effects would be constrained inside Ukraine uh, for political reasons only. For Poland, it would be Article 5, and very, that's very straightforward. For Ukraine, once again, any, in any case, it would be a game changer. And for the rest, I'm not in the heads of our heads of state. I, I think that the most important thing right now is that the parliaments of the NATO nations act swiftly, that their leaders make very clear where we stand. The faster NATO stands strongly in front of uh, Putin, the less apt he is to do something. It is weakness that has allowed him incrementally, time after time, to take another risk that now your, your country faces. So the most important thing is to maintain the unity and the second law of thermodynamics applies in political science. These sanctions are going to either get stronger or weaker. They're not, things don't stay the same in this dynamic world. The military forces are going to get stronger or weaker. We know what we need to do to stop this war, give Ukraine everything it can to defend itself, everything it can uh, integrate, and then strengthen the alliance to a point that this does not spread further, that it's over for Putin. Once again, thank you all for listening to this special episode of Winter is Here, coming all the way from Normandy, France. I'm your host, Yuri Epstein. At RDI, we are committed to pulling American democracy back from the brink and restoring its place as a global beacon for freedom. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player at renewdemocracy.substack.com and share the episode with a friend or become an RDI subscriber at rdi.org. Thank you.